Okay. It's just trying to make sure both platforms were working. I think they both finally kicked in. All right, y'all. How's everybody doing? I hope as well as can be, all considering. Uh, shout out to MOT. Appreciate that. What's up, Grinch? TD Hip Hop Media. Appreciate that. Joe Average Brother, what's going on? I'm let some people come in now. We got about 17. Please hit the like button as you come in. Share. If you haven't, uh, subscribe. Be much appreciated. Black to death. What's going on? Man Friday. Salute to you. I'll let people come on in a little bit. Our jizzle. What's going on? Yeah, trying to get something going here. Let's see. All right. So we're moving. All right. Ron Matthews, how you doing? Artisan, what's going on? Hmm. I'm going to master on this one. All right. What's going on, people? Hope everybody's doing all right. Donnell Aquateki, what's going on? Brother with the crown symbol. I'm not sure what to call you, but what's happening? D Remedy. All right. Deuce, I think it is. What's going on? Gravy Dale. Antonio, what's happening? Are you from the Bay Gravy? All right. Cameron 87, you're in here. All right. I hope everybody is as well as possible, all considering. Um, I know everybody's going through something or other, and it's a little frustrating, at the, to say the least. Um, started having class um, yesterday, Tuesday. Um, thanks, Rodney Jackson, for the support. Um, started having class on Tuesday, uh, remotely from home, obviously. And uh, some of my students, uh, you know, are, are still working, many of them actually. And it's, it's kind of terrifying, you know, the kind of situation some of us are in uh, trying to survive, you know. So I want you guys to be careful out there. Albert Bird, what's going on? Um, and as I say, keep your head on a swivel. This stuff is getting getting more and more interesting. And as far as the expansion and spread of the virus, uh, exponentially speaking, uh, it's, it's, it's starting to slowly ramp up. And there are populations that are being underobserved, understudied, uh, in my opinion, especially in regard to the homeless and the incarcerated. And I think those two populations alone, uh, if this hits them, it's going to be devastating in terms of its impact. You know, so um, I hope we all can stay up. Uh, but I also want to tell you guys, so next next Wednesday, April 1st, I'll be back on um, innerlightradio.com. You can catch me live at this same time, 5 o'clock p.m. Um, uh, Pacific, 7 o'clock Central, 8 o'clock Eastern. And I will be interviewing, um, let's see, author. Let me get him up in here. Um, yeah, author of the book, Rethinking Rufus, Sexual Violations of Enslaved Men, 
So Dr. Uh, Thomas A. Foster, we, I'll be talking with him uh, about his book. It's a it's an interesting text and it goes through and actually, you know, gives you uh, the actual words spoken by enslaved black men and some of the experiences they've had. So if you haven't had a chance to check this book out, uh, it's definitely one to check out. If you're not sure, uh, definitely get with me next week. Uh, like I said, interlightradio.com. You can actually call in if you choose, and I'll be interviewing him from five to six o'clock Pacific uh, from there. I usually advertise on Facebook as far as the link, but uh, if nothing else, remember interlight.com, interlightradio.com, and you can uh, check out the interview. What's up, Zeke? Ian, what's going on? Brenda, hello. All right, Anwar, the disciple. Idris Elbow, what's up? <laughs> All right, so we got a few more people in here. All right, so just remember that going through Rethinking Rufus next week. Um, I wanted to kind of just give a, bit, a couple bits of information. I know um, some of you, again, I share a lot of this stuff on, on my Facebook page. I don't really use Twitter uh, a whole lot, but um, I definitely use uh, Facebook. Nevertheless, um, I wanted to kind of just show a couple of things real quick, just to give some context to where we at, let some people come in. Um, just in terms of the seriousness, we're finding out, you know, slowly but surely the various stories that people have. So this is one about New Orleans bounce DJ um, dying from the coronavirus, right? Um, good looking out, Drew M. Appreciate the support. He said paying tuition. <laughs> Much appreciated. Great Britain. What's up? Cats. How you doing? Curtis to God. What's going on? All right. So just to, you know, kind of put some context to it. This is this is happening. This is impacting people. You know what I mean? And I want us to kind of stay uh, aware of that uh, this particular piece. Um, yet another that I had. uh up on social media, but I think it merits looking at, um, right? Most brown and black Americans are exposing themselves to coronavirus for paycheck, right? So this is just reality of living, uh, especially for most of us. Great Britain, appreciate the support. Um, you know, so this is the reality, right? This is the reality of what we're dealing with. Uh, it's impacting us because our feet are closer to the ground. So Obviously, uh, many of us have to be out in the streets. Uh, again, I was speaking to one of my students. She works at Walmart and she was telling me how they were hiring new people. And so she's being forced to train people. And then she said they were giving them a thousand dollar incentive to not call in sick um, the entire time. And what that does, of course, is it means that people who actually are sick are incentivized to come in. Um, and she's saying, you know, in many instances, people aren't observing social distance, six feet, they're coughing, they're sneezing on them. And yet, you know, we got to be there to uh, provide for kids and family. So, um, you know, again, be careful out there. The impact of this is, is not to be taken lightly. Right. And you actually start to see it impacting celebrities in an interesting kind of way. I saw this both about a concert pianist as well as uh, uh, Avengers actor Jeremy Renner. Right. Uh, so when celebrities start crying about income in terms of how it impacts, say, child support, um, what is the average everyday person grappling with? Right. And Jay Prophet, you said your job is doing that. 
Now be careful out there, man. Um, let's see, intellectual novice. My job has me teleworking until the virus gets a result. Glad to hear that. Right. Yeah. Oh, they giving out overtime. Okay. All right. Thanks for that, Ian. Drop by the blog. Check that out if you get a chance. Um, some of what we're going to talk about today is related to the blog. So let me see. Uh, this is another one. All right. Um, this will probably, I might bring this up a little later, but if you hadn't seen it, I want you to at least know about it. Um, it's obvious. It's definitely, you know, consistent with what we already know. But sometimes with certain people, including family members, we need a little evidence. Um, so just something to be aware of. But also think about this in terms of how um, this relates to the prison population I mentioned before, you know, being in prison and having and potentially grappling with this virus behind bars. So uh, just to kind of get that out there. Um, what's up, Fawn? How you doing? All right. Okay. So, um, today as I'm, uh, didn't mean to do that. All right. As we know, um, we are grappling with, uh, this film. Um, why y'all make me watch this mess, man? I, I mean, you know, I know this is not technically a vacation, but I don't routinely ingest poison on a regular basis if I can help it. That's not true. I've watched a few a few of these kind of items and and yeah, I guess I do ingest poison from time to time. But I am trying to at least give uh, brothers a, a especially with uh our people a view on black men we may not innately have and um you know I, I try. I watched all four of uh, the series for uh, self-made, uh, inspired by, you know, the story of Madden C.J. Walker on Netflix. It's four um, episodes, I guess you can call them, about 45 minutes each. And um, yeah, it was hard to watch, Fawn. It, it, it definitely was. Um, Marvin says, I'm glad you're reviewing this. Uh, Big Poke Dog, appreciate that. Um, Black Male Misandry was the whole series. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, LaShawn, man, I it, I knew what it was and how it was going to be. I'd already heard a few rumors, um, but you got to be in a space for that kind of thing. And <laughs> I wasn't really, you know, excited about having to go through that mess. But anyway, it, you know, I, I, I had a number of, uh, of people ask me directly if I would watch it and, and talk a little bit about it. So I'm like, you know, if you know if this helps you kind of get through it a little bit so you know what to expect if you choose to watch it then i'm happy to help um so uh cat says didn't watch it not planning on it I, I don't blame you i probably wouldn't have if i wasn't asked um i probably wouldn't have but nevertheless i mean what i'll say right off the bat uh nick morgan good looking out appreciate the support what i'll say right off the bat is is simply that I mean, this is made in the mold of the color purple. And if you don't walk away with anything else, as long as you've seen the color purple, then you already get the tone uh, and the idea behind what I what images are brought through. All right. We got 100 people. Um, please hit the like button, uh, subscribe, share uh, as you come on in. Um, yeah. So this is made in the in the in the in the footsteps and the blueprint of the color purple. Um, and, and it's down to a science at this point, right? The, the sheer misandry, the perspective on black men. I mean, color purple, 
I watched that as a kid and I read the book several times at that same time. And I remember seeing my mother and my aunts and my sister, you know, they were all excited about the film. I didn't have the language to explain what I felt um, at the time. I just knew it was a feeling in my stomach I didn't like, but that's a feeling that many black men have grown familiar with, not just from media, but even in our interactions with women and from loved ones to, you know, family members to strangers out in the street. You, you, this feeling uh, that you often don't have a verbiage for, um, I would later call shame. I would later call rage. It was a mixture of things. But at the end of the day, I watched this film over and over and over again as a kid. Um, and, you know, I watched this, this movie that everybody touted and I couldn't remember one black male in the entire film that wasn't a problem. Right. And it felt like an assault on a boy, a little boy, myself and and, and, and many of us it, that kind of came out of nowhere for many of us. I mean, we, we had no context for it, but it was an assault, you know, like somebody just walking up and hitting you in the face and we couldn't understand the reasoning behind it. And yet it had high level studio backing. You know what I mean? It had, uh, uh, you know, um, um, Steven Spielberg behind it. And so, you know, written by Alice Walker, you know, you had these powerful names, Whoopi Goldberg. I was even familiar with Whoopi Goldberg at that point. So, you know, watching that kind of film and seeing this kind of star power and then the narrative was so clearly anti-male. You barely had any whites in it at all. So there was really no context for racism. There was no context for white supremacy. There was no context for the time period. You just had male after male after male. That was precisely the problem. Well, this there have been many films made in that vein since then, and it still continues uh, to this day. And so if you have a chance to put this film on, you'll definitely see that it's still in play, right? So this kind of misandrous impulse, um, and really also this, this, this idea of pushing a sort of female dominance in the Black community as a solution, right, to historical, um, you know, underdevelopment, to slavery, really the impact and legacy of slavery and Jim Crow, the idea being <clears throat> that Black female dominance somehow is the, is the solution to that. And that's what you see in those films. And so they're still alive and well, right? We know in the 1980s and 90s, we started to see other films coming out of, of, of Oprah's network, and that began to expand and flower. Uh, you had the Terry McMillan line, you had a number of others that came out, uh, then we get to Tyler Perry. And so this kind of narrative is popular, especially around a time period where black women coming out of the 70s and going into the 1980s are starting to, to find employment. Right. Fairly high level employment, consistent, if nothing else. I mean, they're paid less than white women for the same job, but they're readily more employed, especially more so than black men. And as I usually say, when you control for incarceration and military service, black men actually make less than black women. So as this dynamic began to rise, right? Coming out of the 1970s, you had black men more and more going into prisons. You had black women, if they were poor, they were at least getting welfare support. If they were, you know, working class, the middle class, they went to college and that opened up uh, career opportunities. So as you start to see this, this shift, this expansion, you know, of men and women going in different directions in terms of stability and economic growth, uh, these kind of films become more popular, right? Because they're marketing to this new Black uh, female intelligentsia with money. And so these films become more and more in line with what 
um, these women are writing about and which books they're buying, again, going back to the Terry McMillans and the Alice Walkers and so on and so forth. So that kind of narrative uh, expanded this uh, to the degree it's at now. Um, so, you know, the, it, the, you can watch a series of these kind of films um, that continue these, these same tired tropes um, that really do go back um, to the 19th century as far as uh, how the perception of black men is shaped and black males across age even, right? So age isn't even a rescue. Boys are, are a problem even in these kind of narratives, right? So that's kind of what we're dealing with, right? And so we're, what we're really looking at is a, a time period where we're being propagandized within our own communities, right? By, by those who look like us, by those who share the same experience, absolutely the one, it's anti-Black propaganda. Um, and it's happening in, in, in a manner that we support, right? And so it's, it's, it's already kind of um, um, a, a conflict just getting out the gate, right? Um, so I'll, I'll start with some of the positives and get those out the way. Uh, some positives, a few oddities, and then we'll get into you know my thoughts on it. Positives were, uh, first of all, I actually was, you know, I'm glad to see uh, Madam C.J. Walker acknowledged. Uh, my biggest problem is she wasn't acknowledged in a manner that was historically consistent. Um, and, and we all know that they're going to, you know, they're, they're going to do a little bit of that, you know, in terms of Hollywood. But it was just done to an egregious level in this series. But still, I mean, I'm glad uh, Walker herself was acknowledged, you know, so, I, I, you know, I didn't have a problem with that. I mean, you're talking about a woman at the turn of the 20th century that uh, was able to hire 20,000 you know, women. I mean, that, that was profound. I mean, so I, her as a historical figure, I honor. I don't have a problem with Walker. I had a problem with her portrayal in this film and the portrayal uh, in terms of how black, how black men in contrast are, are represented around her, right? Um, some of the other, a couple of other things that were cool, uh, the period, the way they, 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 you know, presented the period was, was pretty interesting. Even the technology. I mean, there's a point that's more consistent than you realize when it happens, where they're showing all of them, uh, all, you know, all the family and friends at the house and they're listening or they're, they're on, they're on ticker tape reading about the, 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 the Jack Johnson fight with the great white hype, you know, his big fight. Uh, where he just dominates. Um, and if you haven't seen, there's a PBS special on Jack Johnson that I show, Unforgivable Blackness, narrated by Samuel Jackson. That is incredible. If you haven't seen it, look it up. You might find it on YouTube. Powerful documentary, two parts on Jack Johnson, and they really go through the history. And it's definitely something worth seeing. But in this film, they actually show Black people sitting around this little machine that kicks out a little ticker tape with writing on it that really covers the, the fight, fight, um, you know, uh, blow for blow. And so you had somebody reading it to everybody in the room and everybody's eating and kind of talking and listening to people read. And it was it was a trip to kind of see that technology, you know, at the time playing out the way it did. So, I mean, that the, those kind of little period pieces I thought were really interesting. Um, and that was, you know, kind of worthy, even the clothing. Uh, you know, that kind of took us back. And to be honest with you, again, at a gut, gut level, you know, what I was looking at and what I found myself applauding was not really the acknowledgement of Jack Johnson. It was a time period where we all were black and we recognized that we were black, meaning that, you know, you didn't really 
kind of have the kind of, you know, tensions to the extent that we do now, especially on the basis of gender. I mean, I'm, I'm watching this room full of people that understood that Jack Johnson's victory was a statement about blackness against these kind of established stereotypes of black inferiority, right? But they also understood at the same time it came with a cost and there were many that were killed and beat up and brutalized after Jack Johnson's win because uh, many whites were frustrated that, that he did so. And he did it, he did it embarrassingly so. So a matter of fact, you might even be able to see the actual fight on YouTube, uh, which is worth watching. So the period aspect of the film had moments that were cool. Um, they had a good a good lineup of actors in this film. Uh, I will give them that. They had they had some people I didn't expect to see uh, in there. Obviously, Octa Octavia Spencer uh, was there. Tiffany Haddish, she she's a problem. I mean, she she really plays the same character in every film. Um, Carmen Ajogo was there, you know, um, uh, Blair Underwood, you know, I didn't actually look up, I didn't go to IDBM. I didn't look at anything before I watched the film. I wanted to kind of be surprised. And I was, I didn't expect Blair Underwood to be in it. I didn't expect Garrett Morris, uh, old Saturday night live, um, um, no original member, I believe. What's up BK hammer. Um, he was in there. I didn't expect to see Garrett Morris. I hadn't actually seen him since the Jamie Foxx show. And I wasn't, I know his health was in decline at that point, so it was good to actually see him. Um, so, you know, a few of those kind of people in there, Bill Bellamy, um, Bill Bellamy, you know, came in and he actually did a really good job. I, matter of fact, I will go so far as to say, dramatically speaking, Bill Bellamy and Garrett Morris, these, this is probably the best dramatic roles I've seen both of them play. And I'll admit, I don't, you know, I don't routinely catch them a lot. So y'all might be able to check me on that. But I will say Bill Bellamy did a great job for the character he was playing. He was actually playing like a number runner and a pimp. He wasn't really a runner. He was a boss, really. Um, so that was a powerful kind of moment in terms of that. Um, and, and that was unexpected. You know, there's actually a moment with Bill Bellamy's character where you don't even see him. And it, it's moving to find out what happens with him. And that actually says something about the acting he does up to the point where his character uh, goes through some things. Just to be clear, and I say this every time I do a media review, spoilers. You know, I don't understand doing a movie review without spoilers. So if that's not something you want to hear, I don't know why you're really here. So I will be giving spoilers. But uh, but again, going back, Garrett Morris, uh, Garrett Morris, this is probably the best dramatic role I've ever seen him play. I've ever seen him play. He plays the father of uh, uh, Madam C.J. Walker's husband. You know, um, so she plays the father and he plays the father. So he's her father-in-law. Um, and he has some sit down moments with his son talking about what to expect if, you know, you're, you're with a woman who's in a different space. She's producing, she's out there, she's making money and you're kind of living under her. He has some very interesting heart to heart, you know, words for his son. Um, and even some bonding that he does with, uh, you know, Octavia Spencer's uh, Madam C.J. Walker that, that are, are interesting. So, you know, Garrett and um, Bill Bellamy do a good job. Um, oddities. Well, the film was made, I mean, the series was re really strange. You know, some of the music, <sighs> if you like films, historical pieces that have music from a more contemporary era, then you might like this. I mean, they tried this with um, The Great Gatsby with Leonardo DiCaprio, I believe. It was the same one. You had moments where I think it was Jay-Z 
rapping in there. It was, you know, it was a little awkward, but if you don't mind that, you won't mind it. So there's some music in here that's definitely not period specific. You know, he had like this British rapper in there. She was doing her thing and then, you know, some weird R&B choices. The songs themselves, not all of them were bad. They just weren't period specific. So I really wasn't ready for that. Um, yeah, Cats, Garrett Morris is in it, you know. Um, he said, still not watching. No. <laughs> I ain't mad at you either. Um, Bill Bellamy was West Indian Archie. He was what West Indian Archie was to Malcolm X. Absolutely fun. Absolutely. Um you know, so there were some moments like that where the music would come in, it would just be a little awkward. And then you also had uh, some, you know, some moments where dancers would come in and just be dancing behind the scene when Madam C.J. Walker would be imagining something. And it was just real kind of awkward. You know, it was like, where is it? Kind of came out of nowhere and it, it really wasn't clear cut. So it was, it was, there were some strange moments there. Um, there were some additions to the film that weren't really historically accurate to the life of Walker and her contemporaries. So there's a real strong colorist impulse to this, right? Where the, a good portion of the film becomes about CJ Walker's competition with uh, the character Addie uh, Monroe, I think it was. And Addie is played by uh, Carmen Ijogo. Um, and so you have this, you know, light skinned biracial, you know, character up against Madam C.J. Walker. And that becomes the impetus for their their tension the whole way through. Right. Where Addie actually comes in. Now, Addie is based off a, a real life person that we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, and so they do some very strange things with her that don't really make a whole lot of sense. Um, the real character is Annie Malone. Um, and so Addie kind of plays this, you know, really light, bright, you know, woman who's using her lightness to advance her, her hair, her, her hair, uh, 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 product company's growth. And she works with Addie. She's, you know, she works with, um, uh, Sarah Breedlove who becomes Madam CJ Walker, helps her grow her hair back. Walker ends up, you know, wanting to be a salesperson for Addie and Addie says, no, basically you're too dark. And so you have this ongoing tension between dark and light women in the film, which is an issue in the black community. But the problem was it really wasn't that kind of issue for C.J. Walker in that kind of way. Uh, so it really was kind of jammed in and it didn't make any sense. Good luck. Uh, good looking out, James Strickland. Appreciate the support. So it was weird, right, to have this kind of colorist kind of tension going on. And it wasn't part of the life. Of, of Walker herself in that way. I mean, I'm not going to say a dark-skinned woman in the early part, born right after uh, you know the end of slavery, didn't experience colorism. But if that wasn't a central theme in her life, uh, you know, why would you actually you know change her historical story? Her story is good enough. It's entertaining enough if you want to put it in that context. Um, I actually think history can be way more exciting than, than the actual fiction that's made of it if you actually go to you know, do the work of pulling up the history. So that was weird. Um, and those kind of choices didn't make a lot of sense to me in many instances. Uh, there was another running theme that was still based in colorism. And it was it was, you know, it was again, C.J. Walker and Addie. But at random moments, they would be in a boxing ring. And, and if I remember correctly, you'd hear like the, the, the sound of Jack Johnson actually fighting in the background. And they, and they were supposed to represent Jack. Um, and the great white hype he was fighting. And it was just really strange because that wasn't a central theme in, in C.J. Walker's life, right? So 
these these random moments where you see Octavia but the Octavia Spencer and Carmen Jogo, you know, in boxing gloves and, and dressed in boxing attire, you know, dancing around the ring, supposedly swinging at each other. And it was just really awkward. It made very little sense. And, and, and the other contrast there, too, is you had Jack Johnson actually fighting um, a white man at a time period where the, being the boxing champion of the world at that time meant you were the strongest man in the world. It meant that you were an exemplar of masculinity. It was not something that black men were supposed to have. So to have this moment where Jack, who learns this style of boxing that we take for granted today, where he's not just getting beat up and hit a lot. I mean, the man looked the same at the end of the fight that he did at the beginning. That was a new style of boxing to actually cover up, to block, you know, to move to hit somebody and get out the way. I mean, Jack Johnson was doing all of this at a time when nobody had really done that, uh, especially not at his level. So he's taking out these, these champions, these former white champions and doing so without a mark on him. And he's walking into spaces where you had thousands of, you know, all white audience and he's beating a white man in front of all of them brutally. I mean, they're dripping with blood. He's knocking them out. It's at the point where they're cutting off the ticker tape. They're cutting off the film. So nobody sees these white fight fighters go down. Right. This is a time period where that was not expected. And he's really, you know, in, in terms of imagery and representation, he's fighting and showing that black men are men in a way that we were told we weren't. Because this is this is a time period where we were you know, effectively considered children, right? We were not considered men. We were considered less than. So Jack Johnson's symbolic, you know, victory was important, was powerful. So that for them to take that, put it into the life of CJ Walker and have her fighting a light-skinned woman, it, it, it was a little awkward. It just, you know, so, you know, those were some of the oddities. Um, now, just so we're clear, uh, and you can find this on my blog as well in the about section, what, what I'm trying to do with this and what I do every time I do a media review of something is something I call a black masculinist reading, right? And this is something that can be done with all kinds of different things. It can be done academically. It can be done socially. It can be done privately. And you can do this with, you know, film, art, dance. You can do it with literature, politics, you know, and economics, uh, social behavior. And basically it's, it's learning to read uh, a narrative from the vantage point of, of black males, but black males, uh, historically speaking for the period, right? Looking at the context black men are actually in and how their experience weighs against whatever the narrative of the story or whatever it is we're looking at, right? How do black men's feelings, experience, perceptions, you know, how do those things play into what we're looking at? And so if you look at this film from the vantage point of black men, both now Right. And in, the, in that time period, early 20th century, there are definitely some critiques to bring to bear. And the reason I say that is because, you know, this film is 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 not considered a pure historical piece. They they openly, you know, bring in contemporary black feminist politics and project them onto the moment and present them as if they functioned in the early 20th century like they do now. So this kind of, you know, especially in terms of misandry. So what I'm what I do and I say this you know, on the blog, um, Ian put up earlier in the comment section on YouTube, if you haven't seen it, but it's um, basically new black masculinities dot uh, wordpress dot com online. And if you click the about button, you'll see it. When I talk about a black masculinist reading, I'm talking about the use of concepts that directly come out of black male studies and black masculinism. Right. 
So concepts that address white supremacy, the black male dual economy, uh, what I call a synthetic black gynarchy. And we'll look at that a little bit later. It's, it's synthetic, it's, it's manufactured, but it's nonetheless a reality uh, at the end of the 20th century and plays out in our contemporary media. Uh, Anti-black misandry, that should go without saying. Um, uh, experiential narratives or black male history, socioeconomic uh, underdevelopment, wealth exclusion. This is something that not only the black community experiences, but especially black men, right? Because the social idea, right? The social expectation is that men are providers. Men are, men are the wealthy, they're the decision makers. And there was a very concerted effort to make sure that black men could not play that role by any measure, right? And so uh, to talk about that from a black male standpoint is incredibly important because it's a reality, right? It's an, it's still in many instances a reality. Um, so that's an important aspect of it. You know, media propaganda, right? And there's a very distinct way that black men have been prop been propagandized against, right? The the tropes that go back really to slavery of black male failure of hyper-masculinity, hyper-violence, you know, and, and through very distinct stereotypical characters like the brute or, you know, like the Sambo, like, you know, the Mandingo. You have very distinct characters that in each instance undermined Black masculinity and its potential specifically to put forth the idea that Black men were less than men and were less than human, right? And so when you look at the role media plays, I don't care if you're talking about, you know, the early newspaper clippings that you, you would see of Jack Johnson at the time he was alive to, you know, the development of film with Birth of a Nation and onward. All of these types of media productions, even to this day, still rely on the same vocabulary development, failure and, and inhumanity. Right. And so what makes these films particularly frustrating is you have black feminist works that are funded really by the white establishment that use that same vocabulary, but they do it from a vantage point of being within the community. So if you watch a film, a white film that has a stereotypical black character, uh, you, you can immediately identify it as racist and identify it as a problem. I'll give you an example. Uh, so as we're having this quarantine, I'm watching a whole bunch of stuff I haven't watched in a while. And I, I probably have 5,000 movies, you know, just all over the place. So I, I watch a lot. And I watched a movie I hadn't seen since I was a kid um, called Space Camp. And it was quintessential 80s camp. It, it actually happened right after the Challenger explosion. Uh, and it was considered a little, you know, in poor taste. Obviously, they made the film before the explosion happened and they just put it out a few months later. But it's about these kids that go to space camp and end up actually going into space in a shuttle. And it's, you know, it's a drama with a little bit of comedy. And they have one black character. And this is the same brother that plays in um, uh, Revenge of the Nerds. So if any of you remember Lamar from Revenge of the Nerds, you'll remember him. Um, and so in this, in, in this space camp movie, I'm sitting watching it. This is about two weeks ago. And it's, it's, you know, hitting me with all kinds of memories of seeing it as a kid. But I didn't remember the intricacies of it, right? So at one point, they're asking each other as kids, you know, they're teenagers, you know, why do you want to go to space? Why do you want to be in space camp? And each one, you know, has their thing. This is actually Joaquin Phoenix's first role. He was a short, chubby little kid. If you actually haven't seen space camp, he's in there. That's his first role. And he wants to, you know, emulate Luke Skywalker. You know, there's Leia Thompson, you know, figures in there and they're all talking about what they want to do. And they get to the black kid. His name is, I think his name is Rudy. Uh, and he's a teenager, you know, so they said, well, why are you here in space camp? And he's like, well, 
I want to be the first one to open up a, a fast food restaurant on the moon. And I'm like, the rest of them are talking about college. The rest of them are talking about being inspired by female astronauts and being the first woman in space. And this fool wants to open up a fast food joint on the moon. Obviously, you know, white cast, white film written by whites about, you know, in this instance of black men, we can, we can process that, you know, we can process, we understand that to be racist. When you have those kind of narratives coming out of, you know, works that are funded by whites, but written and directed and acted by black women, it, it takes on a different tone because what it suggests is that there must be even more truth to these stereotypes if black women are the ones uh, pushing them forward, right? There must be some truth to it. Now, one could say we see something similar in hip hop and the derogatory depictions of women. But, you know, even if you look at hip hop from the, the 70s through the 90s, especially, you know, during this period where we talk about, you know, black men in hip hop, maybe early red pill, you know, and the way they talk about women, a lot of the time you're talking about high school age, you know, you're talking about 17 to 25 year old cats who are talking about their experiences. But often with black feminist productions, you're talking about highly educated feminists with master's degrees and sometimes doctorates who are renowned. I mean, there's a very different kind of narrative going that you would think would impact the quality of these stories. And yet it doesn't. So anyway, you know, so that that's what makes these kind of films that much more problematic. What's up, Kendra? How you doing? Um, so. Again, I'm I'm doing a black masculinist reading and I'm just trying to explain what that is so that, you know, you can actually um, participate in it, develop your own, because we need to have a method for how we actually begin to see these things. And much of the time we've not been allowed to develop one. You know, if you sit, if you if you focus on black males uh, in the academy, you have to do so by black feminist values or else you're immediately considered to be a misogynist. You're immediately considered to be sexist. And that's it, even if you haven't really said anything. If you just center black men, there's a lot of attention on you. Like, how are you going to do that? And is it going to be done in a way that complements uh, feminist narratives of, of gender? So uh, I'm trying, I've, I've produced a way of doing so that is not beholden to black feminist narratives. Right. So um, some of the, the basic tropes of it, you know, uh, as far as what I could see. Uh, you know, is, is, and we see some of this uh, across race in terms of the representation of women. Right. And this film kind of does something similar. Women are morally and inherently more truthful, more honest, more pure. Uh, they're they're strong just because they're women. Um, and, and, and so you have this kind of moral authority arc that plays out in a lot of our films. And this is something I said even back when Fences came out. You know, I talked about how, you know, it's the women characters that actually end up providing the kind of moral uh, direction arc of the film. And the men are all inconsistent when it comes to that. And that takes place here as well. Uh, the stereotyping of black men, of course, you know, is, is huge. Uh, the black men and, and, and self-made are either failures. Uh, they're jealous of their women. They're emasculated. And we're not supposed to acknowledge that emasculation is supposed to be just a reflection of men's insecurity. It can't actually have to do with being dehumanized in contemporary parlance. Right. You, you can't if you point out how men are emasculated, the first response you get is either, you know, this fragile masculinity, you know, you mad kind of thing. Uh, and, and the underlying statement there is that, you know, if you really understood gender dynamics that, you know, you you would you'd be able to handle this emasculation and not see it as such. That's ridiculous, right? That's ridiculous. 
it's inhumane and it's it's absolutely disrespectful. Um, but to the stereotypes, I got to give a shout out to to my boy, Dr. Lehman Basil. He actually sent me his thoughts as he watched it. And he said, watching the CG joint, all the same tropes are there. The rapist, the stifling patriarch, the abusive, cheating or irresponsible husband, the light skinned sapphire, the lesbian love interest. They're all there. Another Walker and Morrison Black Mazandras production. And he's absolutely right. That's exactly the way men are presented in here. Um, it, it challenges an idea of a black patriarchy, right? Not, not a reality of a patriarchy. It challenges the idea of a patriarchy by suggesting that because these men are failures, they couldn't possibly be of any use. And it replaces the idea of that with an idea of a, of what I call, you know, a black gynarchy, which is basically, it's not a matriarchy. It's a female patriarchy, right? It's a female patriarchy that you have being espoused in these films. And C.J. Walker is the perfect character uh, for black feminist narratives about a female patriarchy to do that on because she was so successful. Right. So the imagining of it is, you know, her telling people what to do, her always kind of being right and the men not being smart enough to keep up. They're all kind of emasculated children. She has to tell them what to do. You know, these kind of narratives, even to the point where at one point she kicks her husband out and says, pack your shit and go. Those are the kinds of, um, you know, female patriarchal, you know, practices that we'll see in representation that many of these feminists kind of get off on. And so you have that. Uh, you also have a trope where you have this idea of sisterhood, right? This idea of black sisterhood. In some movies, you actually have it womanhood across race. But in this one, uh, it's just this idea of a sisterhood, which is not a problem in and of itself. And I don't have a problem with films that big up black women and, and you know, especially when they're bigging each other up. That's not my problem. My problem is when they do it at the expense of the imagery of men, because it doesn't have to happen. And you see that a lot with a lot of the action films out now. I don't care if it's Marvel or DC, you know, you have to have this idea. It's almost this fetishized idea of female strength. It's, it's this, you know, everybody, you know, every description you hear of a woman always starts with strong, strong. This is a real fetishized idea these days about what it means to be a woman. But in that definition of strength, the way it's measured and demonstrated is at the expense of men the domination of men. Now, many of the action films, you have a 110 pound woman kicking 250 pound trained men through walls. You know, she could be a secretary. She can even, you know, she, her character may not have even been trained to fight and yet she can do so simply because she's a woman. So female strength in these feminist narratives is articulated through the domination of men. And so we see that in this piece, not on a physical level per se, but definitely, you know, in terms of just an overall level, especially in regard to intelligence and capability, right? Um, LaShawn said movies in the 80s still piss you off. Um, yeah, <laughs> but it, it really, they pissed me off because I, I saw them as a kid. And when you see them again as an adult, you realize the kind of ideas they implanted that you don't, you, you don't even have the language at that time to confront. So, um, to me, it's, it's an issue. Um, yeah, Joe average brother says space camp was highly offensive. <laughs> I found photos of Trayvon Martin at space camp. George Zimmerman murdered a potential astronaut. <laughs> you out there, man. <laughs> anyway, um, so that's one. those are a couple of the tropes. And uh, another one was the, the notion of the emasculation. If you watch this, um, I think it's, his name is CJ. Um, Blair Underwood's character plays Charles James Walker. So he plays CJ. Uh, you know, Madam CJ Walker takes his name. 
um, he's an ad man and, you know, she's looking to start this business. So he helps her early on. And at least in the film, he uses his family's property, his family's house, and she uses it as the basis for her business. And I don't think that was particularly historically accurate, but for some reason in the film, they did that. So his family's property became the basis of her business. But that's one of the key parts of this story we'll get to. She only refers to it as her business. She doesn't share that with him. And, you know, when she whenever she talks about it, it's hers. And he actually challenges her, her on that at one point. But she keeps doing it. it's her business. She doesn't share that narrative, even though she benefits from the sacrifices of the men around her, both historically and even to some extent in the film. Uh, now, they don't cover this in the film, but historically she had three or four older brothers who were barbers. And they were the actual first ones to teach Madam Walker about how to do hair. At that time, she was Sarah Breedlove. The barbers, her uncles, I mean, her brothers, excuse me, her brothers were the old, the ones who actually were the first to show her how to, how to do hair. That's, I mean, that's completely gone. Um, she just makes mention at one point that her brothers were barbers, but they didn't show it, right? Uh, so black men are kind of downplayed in terms of their historical importance. And even in the film, you know, as, as CJ, you know, CJ's family provides the housing for her early business, it's, you know, he's still kind of dismissed very early on. Um, let's see. And, and historically speaking, her one of her older brothers is the one that introduces her to the woman that would be her her mentor. Um, uh, and, you know, Annie Monroe. Uh, what is it? I don't want to get her name wrong because they what they did is they recreated this character, um, Annie Malone, and they made her Addie Monroe. So please forgive me if I get the names mixed up. I'm trying not to do it, but they they named the characters very similarly. Um, and these characters, you know, played a role in the development of Sarah Breedlove into C.J. Walker. So um, they recreate this character that was early on uh, Walker's mentor and became her primary competition. But again, they did so by kind of popularizing this um, colorist trope. So I'll show you what I mean. All right. So. On the left, you have the real image of one Annie Malone. Um, and the character, Addie, that you see on the right, played by Carmen Ajogo, uh, is very different. Annie Malone is actually pretty much as dark as C.J. Walker was from what we can tell. But in the story, they made her into, you know, this very light-skinned, long-haired woman. And in that... Um, that sets up the tension. And, and it's almost in this scene where she tells CJ Walker, you're too dark. You can't sell my products. You don't have the right imagery. You don't have the right intelligence. And they set up this tension against the colors. But it's a really weird choice because, you know, the real Annie was actually a dark skinned woman. Um, and I think she had like a high school education, which was a number of years, I think, because CJ Walker only had a couple months uh, of an informal education. And that might have been the primary difference between them. But it really wasn't color based. Right. So this was a strange choice. Right. Um, OK. Catch up a little bit in here. All right. Okay. Uh, let's see. There's some technical difficulties. Bear with me for one moment. 
Hmm, where'd it go? All right. Looks like I lost it. Okay. Okay. All right. Sorry about that. All right. Uh, so anyway, it's a strange choice, right? Uh, throughout this film, every male is a problem. Every male contributes to the either the downfall or the massive disappointment of um, uh, a woman character, right? And so it's this kind of thing that ends up being a consistent problem, and it drives home this this notion of failure, right? So here you see Blair Underwood and Octavia Spencer um, as the Walkers. Acting wise, Blair did a good job, but it was hard to watch because his character was often emasculated publicly by his wife. You know, there were moments where she berated him in front of a crowd of people because of a mistake that he may have made. Uh, there was a scene uh, with Booker T. Washington. We'll have to talk about that in a moment as well. But it, one of the most consistent tropes with him and his character overall was the constant kind of emasculating, um, you know, by Walker. And she teaches her daughter, who's played by Tiffany Haddish, Lelia uh, or Layla, I forget how they pronounce her name, um, it, she teaches, you know, her daughter the same kind of misandry. So it gets passed on, um, which actually I think does actually happen in real life. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it, you can see it played out. Let me switch. To, I'm, uh, so I'll show you the, the various characters we're looking at and um, the kind of roles they end up playing. All right. So here. You can see some of them here. Um, Octavia Spencer, of course, Blair Underwood, Garrett Morris, um, Tiffany Haddish, um, you know, Carmen Ajogo, and some of the others. Um, you see Bill Bellamy there uh, as the numbers boss um, and his cousin um, right here, whose name is Ransom. He's actually a lawyer who starts out as a bellhop, but he has a legal training and uh, Walker hires him to work for her company. Uh, he's married. Uh, he starts out by describing himself when when talking with uh, Walker, with his wife, with him, how he may have the degrees, but she has all the intelligence. So, again, there's this constant deferring to women. Right. And and Ransom becomes what I would suggest is, you know, the, a black feminist imagination about what uh, an acceptable black masculinity is. He's quiet. He's deferential. He does what he's told, especially by women. He puts them above himself, um, you know, and he does that throughout the rest of the film. Now, there is a point where he and his cousin, played by Bill Bellamy, um, get into some shenanigans. He gets some money that his, Bill Bellamy plays a character named Sweetness. And, you know, for the first time in his life, Ransom, who is his cousin, uh, bets a little money so that he can invest in his bosses, C.J. Walker's company. So all of a sudden he wins $500. He invested in the company and he feels good about himself. And he doesn't tell his wife or CJ Walker where the money actually came from. Um, sweetness comes up to him and basically says, you didn't win the numbers. I just basically gave you the money because I want to be one of the primary investors. And so uh, this rate, you know, creates some tension between the two. And for a good portion of the film, CJ Walker and Ransom's wife kind of, you know, uh, punish him like a child for making this errant, um, immature mistake of, of al allowing this criminalistic black man to have any kind of stake in this hair company, right? So there's this kind of moment there. And then the last character at the bottom left you see here um, 
is is uh, I think he's the actor is Jay Alphonse Nicholson. He, um, I think his character is John Robinson, and Robinson plays. Um, let me just make sure I'm talking about the right person. Uh, he actually didn't do a bad job acting wise. Yeah, that's him. He didn't do a bad job. It's just his character, the way it was written, was the problem. Um, so his character, uh, John Robinson, is married to Tiffany Haddish very early on. She's smitten with him. He wants to open up, you know, a juke joint, and that's his dream. And what ends up happening is he ends up moving in at his wife's request with the Walker family, and 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 then he's kind of forced. He's well, he's pressured into working and helping them with the family. So he becomes a part of. Uh, his wife's mother's dream, his mother-in-law's dream. It's not necessarily his own. And there's some tension between him and CJ Walker because she actually doesn't trust him. And she lets her daughter know, even before she meets him, that he's just a, a no count. He's a no good, you know, black man uh, because he wants to be, uh, he wants to be a club owner, which is already a problem for her. And it, it and it plays itself out and we'll get to that. So these are the, the, the main characters, right? Um, as I said, every male is a problem to women. Um, Let's see. Um, the consistent kind of underlying hatred of black men plays out. And it's surprising because they don't address white women at all. The film does not touch on white women, which you would think would be a film. It would be an important aspect of the film because you have black women developing this hair care industry, building wealth off of an idea of beauty that, you know, in a, at least in America and the West, they weren't able to ever really achieve. So you would think white women, white women's aesthetics would be a little more pronounced. No, white men are only addressed really to the degree that C.J. Walker almost kind of idolizes them. She's always quoting from, you know, I think it's John Rockefeller and other, you know, famous wealthy white men. She wants she ends up living next to one at one point. So she kind of pedestalizes white men. And the only couple of times you really see white men physically in the story is when she's trying to get them to invest in her business. Um, and they, you know, really, for the most part, can't do anything wrong. I mean, there's even this moment where, you know, when a white man finally does invest in her, it's this hallelujah moment. So, you know, the realities of racism, just like in the color purple, are kind of put off in the distance. And the primary problem is these black women trying to expand, but having to deal with trifling niggas you know, in terms of their men. So this is the, this is the consistent trope that comes out. So white women aren't even a part of the story. White men are only a part to the extent that they become ideal representations of masculinity for Walker and useful, you know, kind of um, investors in her business, right? So it's that same kind of narrative happening there as well. So a lot of it, again, is, I would say, is projecting today's feminist values uh, on the past in that way. Um, now, so to go into the story a little bit, it, it starts out very early on in, in her life where you see her for a moment. Uh, she's a little kid on the plantation. She was actually born a few years after slavery ends. Um, and then from there, she's kind of, I think it was at 10 years old. She's, she's moved uh, with her older sister and her uh, brother-in-law, right? And he's abusive, apparently. So at the age of 14, she marries for the first time to get out of that abusive household. Now, they say nothing of him. He's actually the father of Tiffany Haddish's character, uh, Lelia. And they say absolutely nothing. And he died two years um, after she was born in real life. You know, the man, the first man she married died two years 
um, after his daughter Lelia was born. They don't say anything about him. Now, I know there's very limited information, but again, if this is a film that's going to fictionalize a historical figure, then you couldn't say anything about her first husband. He had no existence. The second husband in the film um, was, apparently he was in jail. He gets out of jail. He he sees her because she's lost her hair um, and he calls her a mongrel. I, I, I can't remember if he slapped her or not, but he might as well have, you know, and he's drinking, walking out the door. Now, this is interesting. You see him for all but 10, 15 seconds. You never see his face. He comes in, calls her a mongrel, is drinking. Uh, I can't remember if he smacks her, but he walks out the front door while she's crying after him. So you got two husbands that are virtually invisible. The first one, we don't hear anything about who just dies. She mentions that she's widowed at 14, but the man doesn't even deserve mention. I don't even remember if his name was actually said, and I couldn't bear it to watch it again to find out, so forgive me. But he's not even mentioned. The second husband is another no count, right? Dismisses her, walks out on her after getting out of prison. Now, historically speaking, I don't believe that was accurate either, um, but I'm blanking at the moment on her second husband. But nonetheless, um, you know, that's how they played him in the film, which again was unnecessary, right? So the first black male is invisible. The second one is this criminalistic, you know, misogynist, you know, drunkard, right? Right, exactly, C. Shields. You got the single mom trope playing out. So that plays out. And then the third husband ends up being CJ, who's played by Blair Underwood. Uh, he looks to be educated. He's an ad man. So he's working, you know, he's not working with his hands. All of that to suggest that he's supposed to be, you know, some kind of middle class, at least for what it was in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, kind of figure. And so by that, he's respectable, he's intelligent, and he seems genuinely enamored with her. He, you know, tells her she's beautiful, despite that she's not really heard that before. Um, you know, he's always, you know, they they make love on a regular basis, at least to the extent that he wants to. But she's always pushing him away to do work, to do her work, to focus on her business. So it's weird. You have this dynamic where her two first husbands are, you know, they fail to meet, you know, her approval on one level or another, but then you get to this, you know, butter doesn't melt in his mouth kind of middle-class black male. That's everything that one would think a woman dreams about. And she can't, you know, she's constantly pushing him away to do her work and he's enamored with her. So it was a, it was a real kind of strange statement about, um, you know, how women are supposed to look at uh, masculinity, even an idealized masculinity. Um, the idea is that men can't be trusted uh, men need to be kind of coddled and handled like children. You can't invest too much in a man. And you hear her actually say things like this to her daughter. So it's strange. Um, yeah, for life, I hear you. Blair Underwood is always kind of playing those kind of figures. And it's absolutely true. It's not a whole lot. Well, yeah, he he did the same thing in one of Tyler Perry's movies. He was abusive. But in this one, he's not abusive. He just ends up cheating on her, mainly because he feels neglected because she's spending so much time in her business. And, you know, and he cheats on her with, you know, a young light skinned woman that actually works for her, which is supposed to be, be doubly painful. And it's it's really, you know, it's really a problem I mean, in terms of how it's it's represented. What's up, BGS? Um, so. All right. So you have that. Um, so they start out very early. The two husbands, uh, you know, are dismissed pretty quickly. Um, and then she begins to develop a relationship with Addie. Again, played by Carmen Ajogo, 
And from there, um, you know, Addie kind of helps her regrow her hair. And that's, you know, a big deal. So she's marketing and, and trying to sell products for Addie because her hair is growing. But Addie actually doesn't want her selling for her because she's too dark. So in the film, there is conjecture about this in real life, but I didn't find a confirmation because all this, this story is based on, I think it's the great granddaughter uh, of the woman that, um, you know, the Walkers kind of adopt into their family who wrote this as an actual book. So in the film, she steals the, you know, recipe for this formula, this hair growth formula from Addie. She actually steals it from her. Right. And so from there, she builds this business with a stolen formula. And so they keep competing Addie and her back and forth. And again, it's these tensions with dark and light women. Um, let me see. Um, they move to Indianapolis and, you know, they start out working in her house. And there's this moment where there's an explosion in the house because the son-in-law, right, who's married to Tiffany Haddish, leaves on a smoking break. And apparently the, the items that he's cooking up that they're making into the, the hair products explodes. And so there's this tension throughout, you know, a good portion of the film about whether or not he was irresponsible. And he says it's not his fault. But again, it reinforces this blackmail failure trope, this uh, trifling blackmail trope kind of plays into that. And so Tiffany Haddish's character starts to look at her husband with disdain. So again, looking at these two here on the screen, you know, um, the, the bottom left cell with the man in the hat is the uh, is the husband and uh, Tiffany Haddish. So she starts to look at him the way her mother does. And so you can tell they're separated. But this is also built upon because you now have this lesbian character who kind of comes out of nowhere. Right now, I hadn't found any evidence that Lelia and I, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing her name, but uh, Lelia was actually gay. I mean, she actually in real life married three separate times, but, you know, whatever. Um, but her character ends up kind of being seduced by this photographer who works at the company, this black woman photographer. And so the narrative, just like in The Color Purple, is that really black women make better you know, partners for black women than black men. Right. So she kind of seduces her. Exactly. Ronan Harper, Harper 3.0. She kind of seduces her to the point where even though she's actively married, she's clearly having an affair with this woman. Her husband's watching it and he's growing more and more frustrated. But for some reason, he stays there. He never opens his juke joint um, and ends up kind of selling company secrets to uh, Addie. Right. So he's a traitor against the family. And when he's found out, you know, everybody sees him as the trifling nigga that he's con you know, considered to be, which is ridiculous because the whole entire time he was helping and actually working for the family, he was still seen as trifling. So it was an interesting kind of moment where you got to see this, you know, this hatred of black men played out very distinctly on different characters. Now, if you think about one of the major stereotypes, uh, you know, as it pertains to African-Americans, you have um, the Uncle Tom. The Uncle Tom stereotype is a figure that is past his sexual prime. Um, usually you see him on a plantation and his job is to enforce the old white supremacist code on the younger generations of black slaves. Um, so he, he, he kind of represents the older period of slavery, you know, obviously before 1865. And it's about acquiescence. You know, he's older, he's past his sexual prime. He's no longer a sexual threat. And he represents this code. Garrett Morris's character is not explicitly an Uncle Tom, but at the same time, um, 
in my assessment, you know, the way his character kind of plays out, he's he represents, you know, a, a kind of black masculinity that, again, is past his sexual prime and is supportive, you know, of women and their aspirations. So even against his own son, who at one point he's warning about being with C.J. Walker, he's kind of chastising him to do right by her. So he represents this kind of older, you know, you know, masculinity black masculinity that defers to, you know, women in a particular way. Whereas Blair Underwood represents this kind of idea of black male achievement that's, that's failed, right? Despite his education, despite his training, despite his field, uh, he's still ultimately a failure. And so, you know, and, and then when you round that off with uh, John Robinson, the, the son-in-law, uh, the husband of Tiffany Haddish, he is a, a failure and a traitor. So you have three modes of black men represented as three different types of, of stereotypical tropes that fail black women, right? One who's past his sexual prime, the other who cannot handle a strong, powerful woman, and the other who is just a no count, no good at anything, right? So these are the kinds of consistent tropes we see all throughout. And then again, in, in the last character, the one that's pictured in the middle at the bottom uh, on the screen, uh, Ransom. He represents another type of deferential black male who is still somewhat of a failure, but he's redeemed in that because he's willing to defer to women and they take an active role in guiding him. He's able to play a, a role that contributes to the advancement of women. Right. So so with the you know, the, the four characters there, you have this overall kind of statement about what acceptable black masculinity is and what it isn't. And the last one, of course, being sweetness, who represents the nigga. He represents everything reprehensible in the black feminist imagination about black men. He's criminalistic. Uh, he, even though he's dressed well, he ultimately his end is that it's going to come as a product of his overall behavior, which ends up kind of happening. His character gets lynched, but he's lynched in a very different kind of way than you'll, ex you'll, you'll expect. And I give self-made this in terms of that. Um, he's lynched because he takes his cousin, Ransom, the lawyer. He takes his cousin's son, little boy, out for ice cream. And the little boy is disrespected by some white little boys. And he checks them. Sweetness checks them. And in response to that, these white men lynch him. Right. And so you see this moment where Ransom finds out about it. And he and Madam C.J. Walker cry a little bit. It's a little interesting. So on one level, you actually begin to think, wow, OK, they kind of redeem sweetness. They redeem the nigger. They redeem him to the extent that, you know, even though he's 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 a quote unquote thug and a criminal, he's clearly got some human impulses. But then you realize he's dead. So he's never recognized as one of the first investors in, in, in C.J. Walker's business, even though he technically is. He puts in five hundred dollars. Um, but at the end of the day, he's never recognized. And and regardless of whether he's somewhat kind of redeemed, his humanity is redeemed because he's, you know, taking care of his little cousin. Um, he still ends up dead. Right. Um, so you end up with um, five men who paint a portrait of black male failure and black male um, and, and anti-black misandry. These five men are a portrait for how the black feminist narrative about black men plays out. And it's almost like a collection of them over time. Exactly. BGS. He's submissive to black women. Uh, especially when you're talking about uh, ransom. Um, so the, I, and I think the other theme to sweetness is death is that uh, the underlying narrative is that if you don't submit, 
to black women, your end will be tragic. Your end will be not both either in failure, poverty or uh, death. Right. Because we see something similar that actually happens to Blair Underwood's character when he and uh, uh, C.J. Walker split. You know, she catches him cheating. Uh, they break up. He ends up marrying the woman that he cheats with. And then all they say at the end of the film is uh, he's married for a few years. The marriage falls apart and he kind of die. He kind of goes off into obscurity. So, again, the message is that without the guidance of black women, black men have nothing to bring to the table and their future will be not. Right. Whereas black women, the way they kind of play this out throughout the course of the film, obviously, C.J. Walker becomes a millionaire. She passes the business to her daughter, Tiffany Haddish. They adopt a girl mainly because Tiffany Haddish's character, Lelia, doesn't want to have children. She wants to, you know, be openly, you know, be an open lesbian in in, in Harlem. Uh, so the idea is, you know, to meet her mother's desire to pass on the business to an to an heir, they'll adopt this this uh, young black woman who is a model for them. And that becomes it. So the new black family, the new successful black family in this black feminist imagination are a collection of women of different generations and different sexualities who all learn to that men are are failures. Men cannot ever really live up to their expectations. And the only thing that can is each other. You know, so it's almost like a, the new black family in the black feminist imagination is, is without men, right? Um, so Lelia is is you know almost the product of a, an anonymous sperm donor, donor, and then Lilia doesn't even have children, so they adopt. And so it, it, across three generations, the narrative is that men are not needed to produce family not needed to produce the ideal black successful family. An ideal comes into play because these women are millionaires, right? So success becomes the standard of ideal. And anything other than that becomes a representation of failure, which is ascribed to the men, right? So that all kind of plays out in its way. Um, she orders uh, her husband and John, her son-in-law around like underlings. She treats them like children at different points in time. Um, you know, this is really like a black gynarchy wet dream. Um, Let's see. Uh, There's a lot of respectability politics in the film uh, where she declares hair is power. And, you know, she's trying to rally women around doing their hair. And, and, and that's obviously there's a business component to it. But there's also this huge emphasis on the value of black female beauty and what it will do for themselves and for the community. Um you know, if they're able to get this together. And it reminded me of something that uh, Tommy Curry said once he was interviewing on on um, um, Yvette Carnell's show. And at the time we were responding to the article from Very Smart Brothers about black men being the white men of the black community. That crap. And he said something I thought was ex extremely profound. He said um, they keep trying to make attention outweigh death. They keep trying to make attention outweigh death. And what he was talking about was, you know, this push, you know, because like one of the central critiques against black men is that their their incarceration and their deaths um, tend to supersede uh, black women's experiences, um, the focus on black women. Right. And so you had this point where um, if we can just get past talking about black men, we can get to the importance of what black men, black women need to be talking about. Uh, and so he, he was saying that th this push for attention 
outweighed the actual deaths that black men were experiencing at the hands of police, at the hands of the carceral system, at the hands of, you know, the, the state. Um, that's what I noticed here. This push for this attention on hair outweighed the realities of the historical moment that were taking place at the time. Um, and even the historical narrative. Um, they bring Booker T. Washington, for example, into the story. And C.J. Walker is trying to get an audience with him so he can help her get investors for her business. And he keeps not really wanting to, to meet with her. And there's a point where um, her husband, C.J., kind of locks him in the bathroom with Booker T. Washington and invites him to dinner. He said Booker T. pulls a gun on him because he didn't know why he was doing it. But he concedes to come to dinner. So C.J. Walker and them throw this big dinner with a lot of people and a lot of music. And, you know, Booker T. Washington never shows up. And she finally just looks at C.J., her husband, and says, well, where is Washington? What actually happened in the bathroom? And that's where he says, well, he pulled a gun on me. I invited him to dinner. And, you know, C.J. Walker figures out, you know, he's not coming. And so she begins to berate her husband in front of everybody, kicks everybody out of the party. And he walks out, you know, like a child. So, you know, but Booker T., when she finally does get an audience with him, he tells her uh, black men first, you know, you need to stay in your place. You know, this this hair thing, you know, I'm, I don't support it. It's this image of Booker T. Washington as this kind of raging misogynist. And the interesting thing is that there's no record of him saying those things to her. Right. I mean, he it, it, overall, what we found is that they actually did develop a political relationship, especially toward the end of her life. Um, and that it wasn't that he didn't support her at all. He just didn't disagree. I mean, he didn't agree with the type of business she had. He felt like what she was doing was promoting a Eurocentric standard of beauty. And they kind of covered that in the film. But in order to get that point across, they fabricate this statement by Booker T, this like real, you know, clearly misogynist statement that marks him as a bad man, as a failed man, as yet another, you know, sexist or whatever. So they do that with Booker T. W.E.B. Du Bois is depicted in the film, but he's celebrated and he's mainly celebrated because he celebrates women. Right. He's, he's, he's always supportive of her. And so he doesn't really get any negative critique. So, again, just like Ransom, the only acceptable black masculinity is one that defers to women and supports them in all endeavors, doesn't really challenge them, doesn't really check them, even if it's necessary, but defers. And that's considered acceptable. Um, let's see. There is a moment where she tries, C.J. Walker tries to get black men to invest before she gets to the point where she can get white men and they don't really want to support her because she, she clearly overtalks her man. And there's a point where she goes to see this wealthy mortician to see if he will fund her. And he tries to rape her. So she comes home, she's disheveled. She's crying. She talks to Garrett Morris's character. Um, whose, whose name is Cleophis. Now that might be incredible. I don't know if that's his actual name in in history, but that's that's definitely period specific. <laughs> I, I've never met a Cleophis, so that one that that may be as accurate as the film gets as far as the time period. But uh, nonetheless, so she comes home, she's disheveled. He sees her. He asks. He kind of forces her to tell him because she doesn't want to say it. Um, and she says, "Well, he tried to rape me. The mortician pulled his thing out, and you know, I I pushed him off, and I ran back here." Um, and then, you know, Cleophas tells her, don't tell my son. It's not going to lead to anything good. So yeah, LaShawn, it's Cleophas. That's his name. Um, but 
So Cleophas tells her not to tell his son. And so the next time, you know, CJ walks in a room, he's there with his wife. She doesn't say anything about what happens, right? And that's the last time you see the mortician. So this is an interesting statement. From her first two husbands, you have no count poor black men. From her current or her latest husband, you have a middle-class black masculinity that's essentially emasculated, weak, and failed. With this wealthy mortician, you have uh, he's kind of he's kind of an alpha in the sense that he you know out of all of the black investors she courts to get them to fund her he's the lead one he makes kind of he kind of speaks for the group so you have this alpha wealthy black male right who owns his own business as a mortician which was a fairly dependable industry at that time if you could run it and he tries to rape her so again across class across age across you know it it, it across generation all black men fail black women, right? From beating her to, you know, failing her business aspirations to trying to rape her, you know? And it's not to say that women didn't get raped at the turn of the century or they don't get raped now. That's not the point. What you choose to include in the narrative and what you choose to leave out are incredibly political things. They're important ideas, right? And that's one of the things we see here. The ideas that they included as far as black men stayed consistent with these racist stereotypical tropes that we've seen since slavery. What they exclude is black male humanity. The closest you see that humanity is when sweetness uh, is is lynched. But again, they don't even act out the scene for you. Good looking out, Jerome. Thanks for the support. They don't act out the scene. You don't get to see Bill Bellamy's sweetness, take this little boy to get ice cream, confront these racists. You don't get to see any of that. The story is told verbally by his cousin Ransom. He's telling CJ, Madam CJ Walker, what happened because he's sitting there crying and she asks him what's wrong. He tells the story. So you don't even get to see. This is interesting. You don't get to see him actually act out the most humane thing his character does in the film. And then he dies. Right. You don't see him again. So in that that powerful scene, you don't even get to see his face, right? Which is the second time a black man's face is completely oblivious to the story. First time is with her first, or I guess he's her second husband, comes home from jail, smacks her, drinks, leaves. Second time is with sweetness, being lynched. The most humane act he does, you don't get to see it. So there's to me, there's a statement there as well, that you don't get to see black male humanity in the, in the context of black women's lives be promoted be celebrated. You don't get to see it. It it ends up just kind of being dismissed. Um, Okay. Uh, So from there, Lelia decides to move to Harlem. Uh, She convinces her mother to let her open up a business there. Um, And from there, she has a string of lesbian relationships, but they don't work out because her mother is a traditionalist and trying to get her to marry in order to have children. And of course, by the end, her mother has to accept her lesbian lifestyle uh, but again, historically speaking, Lily was actually married three separate times up to her death in 1931, I believe. So, you know, that was interesting. Now, that's not to say because she was married, she couldn't be gay. I'm not saying that. But it is to say in the film, the way she's depicted, she's disgusted by men. She doesn't even want to be around them. Right. Her whole circle is women. But that's and that's not historically accurate from what we see with Lelia, whether she was gay, bi or whatever. She's still actively married and had relationships with men. Um, but I didn't see anything to indicate historically that she actually was gay. But I mean, in the Harlem Renaissance, that was that was an aspect of the experience. So there were many that were. 
Um, and so it's not, it's not, a, not, I'm not saying that they're, they're not there. Or they shouldn't be. I'm simply saying that the narrative that they use in this film is one where Lelia has a, an almost disdain for black men, but the historical Lelia apparently didn't. Now she divorced a few times, but she actively married. So, you know, I don't think the character is being uh, shown properly. Grinch, appreciate the support on the Cash App. Thank you. Um, so let me see. Um, what else? I just I don't want to miss anything major. I figured if y'all going to make me watch this, then I'm going to try and take as many notes as possible because I ain't watching this mess again. Um, there's a point after Madam Walker finds out her husband, CJ, has cheated on her. She literally walks in and catches him. Right. And it's the dumbest thing possible. She shows up at the house to talk to one of her employees, the one he's hitting. She walks in um, and, you know, the woman is disheveled. She was actively having sex just before the door. You know, she let her in. And then all of a sudden she sees the string of clothes on the floor. He kind of walks out disheveled and partially dressed and tries to say, I appreciate the support, Sam. I am. He tries to give this bullshit excuse that he was there to coach her on something. I forget what he said, but he was there on business. <laughs> but he's he's sitting there all disheveled. She's all disheveled. The bed is disheveled. It's smelling like, you know, whatever. So she, you know, obviously figures it out. But, it, you know, for a character like that, it was just stupid. It was just stupid. You know, the way they kind of present it. He gets mad and they argue about it. And she tells him, pack your shit and go. He shows up, I want to say like the next day when she finally has these white... Um, uh, what you call it? Uh, Harry Webster, appreciate the support. Um, she has these white, uh, f- you know, potential investors who finally come to see, you know, the factory because she buys this building she can't afford and she needs investors to, to get it off the ground so she can manufacture her product. So she finally gets these wealthy white investors to come look at it. And of course, CJ comes in at that point. He's still disheveled, got a bottle of alcohol. He's clearly drunk and he's yelling and screaming at her in front of the investors. Um, because, you know, she kicked him out because he was cheating. Now, I didn't find any information to suggest that historically occurred, but in the course of the story, um, the narrative is that niggas fuck everything up. Excuse my language, you know, but it is what it is. I mean, that's the narrative. They are continually failing Black women. And this appeals to Black women who are indoctrinated into this idea anyway. So, and, and if you figure we've had several decades of this media, that serves as part of the indoctrination. So this, you know, is par for the course in that. Um, so, again, she has to reject him because, you know, and she says something interesting to him. She says, you were supposed to be different. You were supposed to be on my side. Turns out you're just like every other man. Now, what's interesting about that is this is the first husband, the first man we see in the story that actively adores her. The reason he begins to pull away, according to the story, not historically, but according to the story, the reason he pulls away from her is because she begins to emasculate him and she begins to focus on the business and not him at all. So he's pouting like a child and he cheats on her to kind of get back at her, you know. Um, so, you know, that that kind of narrative plays out as well. Um and this is Casey Lemon. So, you know, this is the one, the woman who made Harriet. Um, so for her, I guess this is becoming a more consistent trope of representing black men uh, the way she does, because she did the same thing in Harriet. She had literally created a slave catching figure that didn't exist 
a black slave catcher to, to chase down Harriet that didn't actually exist. I mean, if you're willing to fabricate history like that on Harriet Tubman, then you're going to be willing to fabricate history in regard to Madam C.J. Walker. Um, uh, Bill Monger, appreciate the support. Um, let's see. Um, okay. So again, the underlying idea is that black women actually, not only do they not need black men, but their success can only come when they've completely given black men up. I think that's one of the underlying narratives of this story as well. Um, you know, if, if you can separate yourself from black men, finally be done with them, your life will get much better. Um, and we see that kind of played out. And we see it played out in, in a, a number of movies uh, over the decades, right? Um, so anyway, um, let me see. She has a bonding moment with John Rockefeller when she finally lives next door to him. <sighs> Whatever. I mean, again, she's idealizing wealthy white men the whole movie. So she finally is able to get around one. And he suggests that, you know, she not play pay her employees who are, who are protesting at her house at a conference that she's given. And she decides to actually um, go against his suggestions and, and keep her employees and not because um, at the time, the whole question was whether or not uh, she would. She would mass sell uh, Rodney Lampson. Appreciate the support. She signed on uh, with a large chain to sell her products and her, you know, many of her saleswomen were upset at that because they felt it would wipe them out of the market, wipe them out of their position. So they, they were protesting at her house. Rockefeller told her, you know, basically forget them, just do your thing. So she doesn't argue with them or anything. She's kind of, you know, she's very deferential. She kind of walks away very quietly. And then she tells the women protesting, I'm not going to do this big deal. I'm going to keep it between us. And I'm going to, you know, because I respect y'all. So it's this kind of bonding womanhood moment. But again, that wouldn't be a problem if the entire film wasn't predicated on the, you know, this bonding of, of women at the expense of the imagery and representation of men. Um, let me see. This reminded me of the, I don't know how many of you may have seen the TLC movie that they made, but it was very much reminiscent of that, which, which was again in the blueprint of the color purple. Um, let me see. And I'm not sure if the color purple was the first of its ilk, but it definitely, uh, put a stamp on that blueprint and it made it a consistent theme in the aesthetic of, uh, of, of black American entertainment. Uh, the theme being that, that, you know, women have to rise, um, despite just in spite of men. Um, let me see. Okay. Um, let's see. So I think that's it. I think I've covered all of that. And I'm only looking very closely through my notes because, again, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not watching this shit again. <laughs> anyway, um, so it, that's what I kind of got from that. Um, I hope that was thorough enough. I apologize for being all over the place. It's just how my brain works, especially in regard to something that I, I you know, probably wasn't in the space to watch. I mean, I was watching, you know, Justice League animated movies and reading, so I was, I was doing well. But, um. You know, if this helps brothers, if this helps, you know, people, you know, get an understanding of what black men have a problem with, um, both in terms of the feminist perception of black men and these kind of media productions, 
then I hope I can generate a conversation and we can use some of these concepts and ideas and go out and, and analyze and critique other things and bring them back to the fold and share so that we can build on this because there is space for this. There, are, I mean, black men have a critique that, that bears listening to even if by no one else but other black men because we're not taught how to think you know, for ourselves. We're not taught how to how to actually advocate for ourselves. I mean, again, um, you know, I saw color purple purple a hundred times, and then I remember my mother took me to see um, what is the name? It Whitney Houston starred in it. It was one of um, those films came out I think in the early nineties. Um, damn it, which one was it? It was one of Terry McMillan's films. Um, I just saw it. They played it the other day. Um, uh, goodness, what was it called? Uh, Whitney Houston plays the lead in it. Uh, anybody remember what the name of that was? Hmm, what was it called? Waiting to Exhale. Thank you, Kate. Uh, Cats. Uh, Waiting to Exhale. I remember my mother took me to see that, and she was trying to show me. Because even then, I didn't want to see those movies. But again, I didn't have a language for it. And she was like, well, you will find it entertaining. So she took me to prove a point that those films could be entertaining. Um, and I went to see it and I was, there were entertaining moments, of course, but for the most part, it was sickening. Um, and, you know, for me, and I couldn't explain why. Now my mother enjoyed it because it was made for her. Um, you know, she couldn't understand why I would have a problem with it. But the problem was I didn't know how to say what my problem was. You know, and I think at that point I was in undergrad, you know, for a couple of years. I didn't have the language. Not nah, big poke. It wasn't uh, Bassett. Well, no, she was. Angela Bassett was in that one. Whitney Houston played the lead. Angela, that was the one where Angela Bassett is married to Michael Beach and she burns all his stuff because she finds him cheating with a white woman. And, you know, she claims that she helped build his business up and he lied and stole money and and eventually she wins in the divorce and she has this moment where she kind of falls for Wesley Snipes, but Snipes is married to a white woman that's dying. And so, you know, she has to kind of wait for him to go through that. So there's this moment where they try to redeem black men to a degree through Wesley Snipes. But Michael Beach plays this, you know, um, instead of being a trifling criminalistic dude, he's, he's a trifling middle class executive. And eventually, you know, he concedes the divorce and she gets everything she wants in the divorce and wins. And it's that kind of narrative. And, you know, I, I didn't have the language to tell my mother what I found, you know, frustrating about it because I'd seen these tropes. But I think you had, you know, black feminists like, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, Alice Walker, who were writing these things and, and there was no accompanying male response, right? This was the rise of the gender, black gender studies programs or, you know, the feminization of Africana studies where you had this black feminist critique becoming part of the canon of Africana studies. You had the rise of intersectionalism and that was beginning to, to, to bear some weight, uh, you know, late 80s, uh, 1989 through 1992, this time period where you had, you know, this, these kind of ideas starting to take up real estate in Africana studies but there was no space for an accompanying response by black men. As a matter of fact, I think many black men felt that responding was a sexist act in and of itself. And the, the measure of being a good man was to be able to receive this critique, take it as gospel truth 
and then act accordingly. But I just showed you in the Madam C.J. Walker film what it meant to act accordingly was to defer to women, to be quiet, to repeat their talking points and not challenge them. Otherwise, you were immediately deemed sexist. Right. And so you had this catch 22 of either being quiet and deferential or being outspoken and being and being a sexist. And those were the two the only two camps that many uh, black men found themselves on when it came to making these critiques, at least in the academy. But I think to some extent in uh, mainstream culture as well. Um, so anyway. Um, um, that's about it. I'm going to go from there. Um, I'm going to close out. Y'all know how I do this. Um and I'm here to, you know, tell you, brothers, that we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incalculable, uh, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support sources, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We're thinkers, inventors, innovators, leaders, fathers, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you. And remember, your worth is not defined by meeting people's narcissistic, selfish, and unrealistic needs. You define your worth, so I hope you do so. Peace.